You know Armin Shimmerman as the scheming Ferengi quark on Star Trek Deep Space Nine and possibly also as the principal of Sunnydale High on Buffy the Vampire Slayer. But if you ask him what he considers to be his primary profession, you might be surprised by his answer. I'm primarily a teacher, he told me. Shimmerman's also a writer, and the third book in his Illyria trilogy is set to be released early next year. He and I sat down to discuss the books, Shakespeare, Sherlock Holmes, Star Trek Deep Space Nine, and the late great René Auberginois. If you're considering buying the Illyria trilogy, I highly recommend starting with the first one, Betrayal of Angels, which you can order at Amazon. If you've already read the first two, you can pre-order the conclusion in Balance of Power at the Jumpmaster Press website. All the links are in the show notes below. I'm T. Rick Jones, and this is your Daily Star Trek News. Thanks so much for joining me today. I really appreciate appreciate it. I loved reading your books. I read all three of them. Um, oh, you could have read all three of them. Third one hasn't come out yet. They they sent me a reader copy. Oh, did they? Okay, okay. So yeah, I really I really enjoyed them. I am a Shakespeare nerd, um, as well as a Star Trek nerd and all kinds of other kinds of nerd. Well, nerdy you and things. I must be brothers from long past then. <laughs> yeah, I think we must be. Um, so you consider yourself, you're, you're a television actor and you're a Shakespearean actor, but I read somewhere that you actually consider yourself more a teacher than anything. Is that right? I am primarily a teacher. I, uh, certainly I make my living from acting, um, and to some extent writing, but, but, uh, teaching is, uh, what I prefer. And if, and if I had to give up everything else, uh, I would hang on to the teaching and give the other things up. Yeah, the acting is uh, is wonderful, and it's uh, it's a great opportunity to to do things, and I'm very lucky in that profession. But uh, uh, it it has it pales in comparison to the joy that I get from watching people understand what it is that I'm teaching. I teach primarily Shakespeare and and two actors about how to make the language more understandable to an audience, which is relatively easy to do easier than most people would think and you you use that in your books because your books are sort of have a leaning towards uh elizabethan english language yeah uh because i'm so steeped in it i've done about i think about a third of the canon there are 37 plays altogether and and uh, give or take and uh i have done about a third of them some of them i've done more than once in fact last night i directed a production of uh, a reading anyway of Richard II. So um, uh, uh, I deal with Shakespeare pretty much every day and have been doing that since I went to college, which was not yesterday. You know, professionally, I'm a stage manager um, and I've done a lot of Shakespeare as well. I love Shakespeare. And actually the last Shakespeare I did was Twelfth Night. Um, uh, well, yes, my books are all about Twelfth Night. Yes, uh, Well, good for you. Uh, stage managers are, are very important and I look to them for help every time I get it. For me, the three most important people in the room is the director, the stage manager, and the dramaturge. The show wouldn't get done. Uh, and I was recently in a show where lots of things went wrong. It was actually the name of the play, the play that goes wrong. And, uh, and But there were things going wrong that we hadn't rehearsed that were just happening because they were happening in live theater. And our stage manager was right on top of it. And, and we would have fallen apart many times had it not been for her uh, quick thinking and knowledge. For anybody who hasn't read 
the books yet. Just give me a quick ele- elevator pitch of about what the what the trilogy is. Well, the trilogy is both fantasy and history at the same time. Uh, I deal with the Elizabethan period, specifically years of 1583 and 1584. I deal with a character uh, who I've been fascinated with for many years. His name is John D. Dr. John D., who uh, was an extraordinary Renaissance man at the time. He had the largest library in England. He was a great mathematician, a teacher to the king, to many important people of the court. Uh, He was a mystic, and sometimes we believe he was also a spy. So my novels have to deal with John Dee um, trying to find out the loyalty of a particular count on an island in the English Channel. And uh, during the course, before he sets out on his investigation, uh, he meets with a young a playwright failure called Will Shakespeare. Uh, Will is about 16 years old and uh, takes him on uh, for this assignment, mainly because Shakespeare wants to learn, uh, wants to learn from one of the greatest minds in England. And uh, Dee wants to use Shakespeare because Shakespeare in my books, and I believe perhaps in life, in real life, had perhaps a photographic memory and certainly could remember lots of things. We, we know that it was a fact or factoid that in Elizabethan times, uh, people had phenomenal memories and they could uh, listen to a sermon, come home and tell their aging grandparents who hadn't been able to make it to the sermon, uh, word for word, what the, what had been said uh, during the church service. So that's, it is the investigation of, of uh, a particular count uh, who was Catholic. At that time, one of the great uh, factions or or debates or problems was a conflict between those people who believed in Protestantism and those people who ardently believed in Catholicism. There was great friction between those two beliefs. People were being killed off constantly because of their beliefs. And uh, D is sent by the authorities to find out if a Catholic count in uh, in the English Channel is providing passageway for Catholics to invade England uh, against the laws of the country at that time. And and as we find out of giving this away, but there you go, um, the the count is Count Orsino from Twelfth Night. And um, a lot of the people that Dee and Shakespeare encounter on the island are the characters from Twelfth Night. But but a great deal of of the books uh, are very much historical. Yes, they're fantastical because the, the Twelfth Night characters are there, but uh, it is also historical because almost everything that I put into the into the novels uh, is historically correct, including uh, these possibly being a spy. And we don't know what happened to Shakespeare in his early years. We don't know what happened between his time between Stratford and and uh, his first play, which is probably Henry the Sixth, Part Two, um, and. Uh, so it's up for grabs where he was uh, and and how he became the scholar, poet, laureate that he was. And my premise is that he learned it from this great man, John Dee. You said that um, people in that time seem to have better memories than we do today. What, what accounts for that, do you think? Um, I think because it was an oral culture and not a visual culture. I believe uh, because a lot of people couldn't read. And uh, there were no movies to go to, no TV to go to. Um, they they depended upon what they heard. 
to to uh, to live to survive, and so uh, it became it, it became de rigueur to to remember very well what happened. Your life depended upon it. It was a very dangerous time. People, the average life of a Londoner in 1583 was 22 years old. If you got to be 30, you were an old man. So um, uh, I, you needed to remember things in order to survive. The book trilogy is called Illyria. Illyria is a semi-fictional island in the play in Shakespeare's play Twelfth Night. Um, why why did you choose that setting? Why did you choose that play? There are other Easter eggs throughout of other um, other plays, particularly like Hamlet. I've noticed a lot coming up. Um, but uh, but Twelfth Night, um, why why choose that as your backdrop? Well, originally the the idea was to write a series of novels based on these two main characters, Will and John D, uh, investigating different crime scenes or uh, ideas or or missions, uh, and each each book would be related to a different play. The problem is it took me 20 years to complete these three novels. And so I started with Twelfth Night, mainly because I had been directing Twelfth Night at the time, and because I, I think Twelfth Night is one of Shakespeare's greatest plays. Um, and those characters just seem to be right, right also for, for an investigation. So uh, that's why I started with Twelfth Night. And uh, if I had another 20 years, perhaps I could write about another play. You've written about John D. before. Uh, you co-wrote a series, right, about John D.? I co-wrote with uh, two other authors uh, a series called Merchant Prince. Michael Scott, who was my first co-writer in the first Merchant Prince book, is an uh, Irish author, and uh, he introduced me to John D. I didn't know about John D. until Michael told me about him, and we set up this writing program between the two of us to to uh, write these Merchant Prince novels. Uh, and Michael and I wrote the first one together. I would say that I wrote about 40% of it. He wrote about 60% of it. Um, and then uh, we'll go into the long story. Uh, Michael and I, uh, our, our partnership ended amicably, very amicably, but it ended. And so uh, I was then teamed up with uh, Chelsea Yarbrough, a very famous um, science fiction writer. And we wrote uh, the next one. Uh, in that case, I think I wrote about 70% of it. She wrote about 30% of it. And in the third one, um, I wrote 100% of it. John D., as you say, was a real person. What about him makes him an interesting character for you to write about? What draws you to him? Well, he, he's just fascinating. He's just, uh, here was a man who is enormously knowledgeable. He was recognized as one of the smartest men in Europe at the time. He was also a poor man. He never... He, the queen never kept her promises to him. Uh, he was a mystic. Um, I, I find uh, history has sort of shelved him with with uh, lunatics and crazies because he believed that he could communicate with angels. Uh, and why not? This was a period of time when a lot of the unthinkable things were happening. They were finding out, for instance, that the, the, the earth wasn't the center of the universe, but the sun was the center of the solar system. They were finding out about new lands in the Pacific and in, uh, in, the, in the Americas. Um, they were finding out about new scientific things. They were making huge discoveries. It, it, it doesn't seem that unlikely when everyone believed in the Bible, where angels definitely occupy, that, that, I, that angels didn't exist, 
and that someone there must be a way to communicate with um with those angels and and so it seemed like a, a reasonable rational thing to do at the time it may not seem so rational today in hindsight we think of him as, as slightly on the fringe but the truth was he was following a scientific investigation as much as any other scientist at the time was doing so his 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 i'm trying to uh, brush up his reputation although he doesn't need me to do that in the last 75 years or so, I think people have been recognizing what a brilliant man he was and how important he was to Elizabethan England and to Jacobean England. And uh, and I am just find him fascinating. From John D. to uh, William Shakespeare, how did you, I mean, you've made a career out of William Shakespeare. How did you, how did you find him? What was the first play you read? What what interests you about him? Okay, now so we're going way back into my past, way back. Um, I was born in New Jersey. That's how far back we're going. And then at 16, uh, my family moved to California, uh, where I entered a new high school in Santa Monica. And the English teacher uh, saw that I was new to the high school and said, would you uh, audition for a play? And he cast me in that. Uh, which was the lead in, in The Crucible. And then uh, the next play was Hamlet uh, in high school. And he cast me as Claudius the King in that. And I believe that's where my fascination with Shakespeare started, was in playing Claudius in Hamlet. Um, when I graduated from high school, went on to school at UCLA, I, I, I originally started as a poli-sci major, but then quickly in my sophomore year, transferred over to the English department worked with a specialization in Shakespeare. I had a phenomenal teacher uh, named David Rhodes. And David was such a good teacher. And I he so thrilled me about the study of Shakespeare that it became a passion of mine for the rest of my life. Um, and I went on, as I said, to do many Shakespearean plays. My, my acting career started in a Shakespeare festival in San Diego. And uh, I've been fascinated with all that time does it give you a certain amount of freedom to uh write a novel you get to be the director and all the actors exactly. of this of this story uh does that give you some freedom or is it harder how's what's your feeling on that that's an excellent question uh, i believe it gives me freedom because you're right not only do i get to play all the characters but i also get to be the, the scene designer uh the sound designer uh, the stage manager. Uh, I, I get to choose and pick what words I want to use. I'm fascinated by the language. So uh, that's a great, great freedom. But with that freedom comes a tremendous amount of hard work, especially when you're writing a historical novel, where if you, if you want to be believed, if the story is going to be credible, you really have to do all the research possible to make sure that you don't have a telephone ringing, you know, uh, up to the side during a scene in the Elizabethan period. Um, you have to make sure that, at least I have to make sure that everything is historically correct. And and I, I've spent thousands of hours, hundreds of thousands of hours doing research to make sure everything that I wrote about uh, is correct, except, I have one exception, except for the age of Shakespeare. In 1583, uh, Will Shakespeare was a little bit older than 16, but only a couple of years. But, but I needed him to be that that young for uh, for the story to work. You set up John Dee and Shakespeare as sort of a Holmes and Watson. Did you consciously set out to make them that sort of team? Yes, yes, um, yes. 
uh, I, I'm that was our original purpose. Is uh, Michael Scott, who, as I told you, wrote my co-wrote with me my first Merchant Prince book. He's actually the person who came up with the idea to have this Watson Holmes team investigate things from different plays. So uh, as we discussed it over lunch, uh, we came up with it together. D is the is the older, wiser man, the the mentor, uh, and. Uh, and Shakespeare is the mentee trying to learn as much as he can. Um, and, and the characters, uh, as a stage manager, you know what I, what I mean when I say backstory. So I've, I've given all of these characters a tremendous amount of backstory before they actually show up in the actual play of Twelfth Night. So uh, it was great fun as an actor, writer, to do that, to come up with backstories for all the characters in Twelfth Night, except for the two that arrive on the island at the beginning of the play. Talk to me about Illyria for a second. Illyria was actually a real place, but yes. not the way Shakespeare wrote yeah. it. Shakespeare's was- <laughs> Illyria, I believe, someone will probably correct me, but I believe Illyria, the original Illyria was Turkey. Um, that's where Illyria originally was. And then uh, Shakespeare decided to put Illyria, one would think, one's not quite sure, but one would think it's in the Mediterranean, one, one gets the feeling that's where that is. Uh, it could be in the Bermudas, I don't know, but but it's certainly not in the English Channel. But I needed to have it in the English Channel, and so I placed Illyria in the, in the English Channel. Um, and I based Illyria as far as descriptions and, uh, and placement geography. Uh, on the Isle of Jersey. I'm from New Jersey, so that seems like a good place to be. Now, not to give too much away, but at the beginning of the second book, A Sea of Troubles, um, John D. is called away um, to to attend his own trial. Did that actually happen to him? Was that a real, a real event? He was event? put on trial, yes, but not, not in that particular court. That court was uh, the highest court in the land, and ironically, it really wasn't a court. It was a tribunal. It was a inquisition, basically. Basically, um, but John D. was put on trial at least once for his uh, religious ideas. Uh, for uh, he was he was uh, hounded for his uh, reputation as a necromancer, as a as a warlock. Um, and you see, he's a fascinating guy. Um, but he, he didn't appear in, in, in that particular court. But that court was so fascinating to me. And because uh, I wanted him to be facing his accuser, which was also his employer, Francis Walsingham, um, I, I wanted to make that court. That's the only court where Walsingham would have sat. So it was important to do that. And that, as I was talking about research before, was months of research yeah and then that novel ends with a major cliffhanger that is resolved in the third right. novel and why the question has to be asked why does armin have two cliffhangers and i'm again, giving something away uh in the first and second book um and the reason is i told you it took me 20 years to write this story and uh, it, it was all one story at one time and when Jumpmaster press bought the book it's only after we signed the papers, they asked me, so how many words do you have? And when I told them that I had several hundreds of thousands of words, uh, they said, you don't have one book, you have three books. So in order to uh, uh, make it three books, 
uh, I called upon my past life as an actor in, in a television series and realized I need some cliffhangers here in order to uh, extend the book, which prompted, we talked about the, the trial, which prompted me to have to take long tangent journeys around the original story in order to facilitate what had happened in the in the cliffhanger and uh, what happens in the second book without giving too much away is sort of what happens in the Sherlock Holmes stories as well. So, um, um, so I, I know for eat for the second and third book, um, I had to write an extra hundred pages uh, in order to bring the story back to where he'd originally been. Basically, Jumpmaster Press made you add to the add to the book, which I think is a good thing. It I is a very good thing because I'm because what I added, I'm very very happy with what I added. I'm very happy with what they sort of didn't force me to do, but urged me to do. And uh, I think the story is better. I think the books are better because of that tangent uh, being incorporated into the book. Talk to me a little bit about Shakespeare's name, because he has had, he seems like he never signed, signed his name the same way twice. Uh, right. And in the in the novels, you call him Shakespeare. Mm -hmm. um, S-P-A-R is the end of that name. Why did you choose that? And, th and then Di I think it's Diane starts nicknaming him Shakespeare. Right. Uh, why? He says, oh, I think I'd like to be called that, yeah. Um, so you, you pinpointed it, uh, you, you've answered the question yourself and you're, which is that we know that there are, I believe, I think I have this right, that there are six examples of Shakespeare's signature where he wrote his own name. In three of those examples, he spells it differently because spelling was not what we think it is. There was no such thing as a spelling bee back then. You, you, you could spell a word any way you liked and nobody cared. It was up to the reader to figure out what it is that you meant. And depending on your accent, you spell out the word according to your accent. Um, Shakespeare himself, as I said, wrote his last name different ways. And, and, and I decided to follow in that, uh, that sort of uh, theme and, and spell it a different way myself. Um, I'm not so sure if I had it to do all over again that I wouldn't have spelt it a different way. Still wouldn't have spelt it the way that we normally see it, but I, I might have gone with Shaxx with an X, because I think that's probably, that would have been a better choice. But I, I wanted to give lip service to the fact that Shakespeare never spelt his name the same way, so I didn't want the reader to see Shakespeare and, uh, and, 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 you know, assume that that was the way he spelt it all the time. And you might think it's a typographical error, you know, why, why is that? And, and one of the great things that if I may take a tangent on this, that a Shakespearean actor, director, uh, and, and perhaps you face this in, in your own productions, is that we're never sure what were the exact words in the plays sometimes. For instance, the, the, most, the, the, the most famous of the inexactitudes, oh, that this too, too solid flesh would melt. Um, so uh, one, one version of the original text has uh, solid. Oh, that this too, too solid flesh would melt, thaw, and resolve itself into the dew. Um, and the other uh, version is, oh, that this too, too, I've just forgotten the other word, solid and sullied. So 
we Americans tend to use solid. That's our sort of go-to ch choice word. The Brits tend to use sullied, not solid. Um, so we're never sure what words were the, ex the words that he actually wrote, or did he change it? You've been in enough productions to know if the playwright is sitting there, he can often, she can often change words in rehearsals and say, okay, don't like that so much. We're going to change it to this. And then the actors grumble because they have a new line to memorize. Um, and um, so uh, the changing of words uh, is, is what, again, part of, of uh, spellings and, 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 word changes and we're never sure what's what. You are a Shakespearean actor and director and teacher. You've got Shakespearean training. Um, you played a Ferengi. You were the first Ferengi on Star Trek. Um, One of the first four. Yes, there were four of us in that first episode, but I certainly had more lines than anybody else. Yes. Yeah, and then, and then eventually you became Quark, who we all know and love in Star Trek Deep Space Nine, who had a great arc. Um, but you had, you had a lot of prosthetics and makeup to emote through um and i've heard it said and i believe it to be true that shakespearean actors have an easier time of, of doing that than than standard actors so is that true is that uh, how did your shakespearean training help you well i have a thesis and i'll start my thesis by giving you uh, a, a premise and the premise is this Almost all of the major characters in, in Star Trek have a classical theater background. Uh, certainly Patrick Stewart, William Shatner, uh, Avery Brooks, Kate Mulgrew. Uh, all of those people are, are, are and were major classical actors, supporting actors. I don't have to tell you about Rene Aubergenois, uh, Brent Spiner, um, many, many others. In fact, most of us. Most of the people who were at the top of the list as far as the cast list um, had classical theater background. Now, to your question about prosthetics, the thing about Shakespeare is because the language is heightened at times, not always, but at times, one needs to be a little bit larger than life, a little bit. So when the makeup artists put prosthetics on you, um, uh, for an actor who's never dealt with heightened language, who's never dealt with being a little bit larger than themselves, that's going to mute their performances. The makeup is going to mute their performances. Why? Because uh, what does an actor have to, to uh, show what they're thinking, what they're feeling? Their face and their voice. So if you cover up their face, one of the two is gone. Uh, so you, then you only have your voice. And, and you have to, your specifics is, and you know what I'm talking about, your specifics have to be strong enough to, to get what you're thinking and what you're feeling to the audience, despite the fact that you're covered in, in, in uh, plastic. So uh, I, I do think that uh, having experience with heightened language, with classical theater, helps you get over that hurdle of uh, of the makeup that mutes your performance. It's it's only the eyes. In my case, it's only the eyes. For Renee as well, only the eyes. His face was totally covered. Um, you know, Michael Dorn, for the most part, who's not necessarily a classical actor. Not he, he was, he is now. Um, and uh, uh, you know, Nana, who, who was a wonderful, incredible actress, only had the little nose. So that's not as hard. But um, but all of us have to get. 
get you to think past what you're seeing and get you to listen to what we're saying. And, 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 and there is, it's off-putting. Uh, when we had actors show up on the set for the first time, um, they didn't know where to look. That, that they, because looking at the makeup just was a little bit unnerving. Um, and, and so they didn't know where to look. And so I imagine the audience is the same thing. Where do you look? How, how? Yes, the camera helps us to accept those, those creatures as, as, as real. But, um, but still, you have to get past the makeup to listen to what the characters are saying. I saw the DS9 cast um, in 2016 in New York uh, for the 50th anniversary thing. Um, and I was, the thing I remember most about that are your reactions with the late, great Rene Auberginois. Um, you, you two seem to have an affinity for each other. You weren't just sort of frenemies on stage. It seemed like you were friends, or on screen rather, it seemed like you were friends off screen as well. Uh, is that true? That is very true. Very, very true. Uh, I believe the love-hate relationship that the writers developed came from their realization early on that Renee and I were bonding very quickly and uh, we were great friends and, and we did a lot of things together. We did not just Star Trek things, we, took tra we traveled together, not just for conventions, but for our own enjoyment. Uh, we spent a lot of time at each other's houses. We, we rehearsed together, we rehearsed uh, scenes together. Um, we had a lot in common because we were both from the theater and we had a lot of mutual friends. The irony is I had done a play with Renee prior to Deep Space Nine. It's called Petrified Forest. And the truth of the matter is I wasn't very fond of him uh, during that production. I don't think he even knew I was alive in that production. Um, but because um, we never had any scenes together and we, we only passed every night once on the staircase, uh, him going to one of his scenes, me coming back from one of my scenes. Um, but we became great friends and uh, uh, and it, we started out when I read the script. Uh, oh, uh, Odo and Quark don't like each other because I wasn't fond of Renee from that play. I went, oh, that'll be easy. That'll be easy. But um, but but because we became huge friends uh, and very much involved with each other's lives, um, um, the, the writer saw that and, and incorporated that into uh, the relationship that the two characters had. When Renee and I had a scene together. It was special. It was important. And we didn't have that many scenes together. We, we know that people uh, always talk about the uh, Odo Quark relationship and, and how special that was. And it was. But we would always sort of look at each other because we knew we didn't have that many scenes together. You made me laugh a few months ago when you said that you would willingly play Quark again if you didn't have to put the makeup on. I had already seen the Lower Decks episodes that you were that you were in. So I was like, oh, that's very clever. He's telling us what's happening without telling us what's happening. Yeah. <laughs> Wordplay worthy of Shakespeare. Thank you. Uh, I had a contract that said I could not speak about doing Lower Decks until it aired. So... And, and I can't tell you how many times will we ever see you in another Star Trek iteration? And I would say what I either what I said to, that you just repeated or no, I lied to people. and I felt badly about lying. But but contract, as Quark would say, a contract is a contract is a contract. And um, so um, we had to keep that a secret. Um, 
but uh, I can't tell you now uh, that there are no further iterations of, of Star Trek for me in the future that I know of. Now, they may be writing them, but no one has talked to me about it. Would you, if they if they came to you with another offer, would you be like, sure, I'll play Bart? No, I've been asked that question before, and, and I have um, this answer. I they would have to I, I can't imagine me being a series regular again. That that is just a lot of work. That makeup that I've been joking about was hard to wear and it was hot and it was claustrophobic. Uh, not that I'd suffered from claustrophobia. Um it made me deaf, you know, in the sense that uh because of those years, I could it, I really had to look at the actors I was working with because most of the times I couldn't hear them if I turned my head. So um I, I, I would be hard pressed to say yes to a series regular existence on a show. Um, but if a, record, a recurring character uh, that came back frequently or infrequently, yes, I would be more than willing, uh, eager, in fact, to do that. About, uh, about six months before COVID hit the world, I went to England and and uh, I put on all the makeup again for the first time in decades. Um, we had arranged for my makeup artist, Karen Westerfield, to come to England to put it on. Between the two of us, we had appliances, as they're called, uh, from the show to, to have the actual pieces. She'd had, she had to recolor them, as she did every day when I appeared. Um, everything but the teeth were original. And... Uh, uh, she was amazed. I was amazed. My wife was amazed. Uh, Ira Bear, our our showrunner, was amazed how incredibly like the, the character of 20 years ago I appeared. Uh, it, it was like a time machine. I had gone back in time. It, it, there I was looking. I mean, I don't look like Snyder 20 years ago, 30 years ago uh, anymore. But that quark was identical to the quark that you saw on the show. Identical. Um, so, uh, if I were to go back, uh, it's plausible and, and Ferengi lived for a long time, they tell me. So, uh, I could go back and, and, and do it exactly, uh, the way that I did it before or look to, I would appear to be the same. I think I have some deeper thoughts about the character now than I did when I was doing it, but uh, that's, uh, because time has taught me some things along the way. I've said before earlier that I, I played well, I said I played several Shakespearean plays several times. In those plays, I often play the same character again. And it is amazing uh, to realize between the first iteration and the second iteration what has happened to me that changes the performance from that first time to the second time or the third time. Well, I don't know if you know this, but in Star Trek Picard, Quarks is a franchise. So I've been told. So I've been told. Uh, and in Lower Decks, they also say that it's a franchise. I'm glad that he has succeeded. Uh, I just like for him to get some uh, more camera time. That's it. When they talk about Quark uh, or any of the characters, but it seems to me, and I, and I may be wrong about this, that on other shows, Quark seems to be the more mentioned character from Deep Space Nine. I, I am grateful for that, not only for egotistical reasons, but I am grateful for the acknowledgement of the importance of our show which unfortunately, in the minds of the actors who were playing it at the time, we always thought we were the orphan child. We always thought that we were 
not considered uh, as good as the others. And so when they mention my, my character or any of the other characters from our show, um, I see it as a way of acknowledging the importance of Deep Space Nine. Well, it's interesting you say that because I, my understanding is because the network wasn't really paying attention, as close attention to DS9 as they were to Voyager, say, um, you guys got to do a lot more. You got away with a lot more stuff. You were um, you know, a serialized show before Buffy was on the air. Right. Um, if I may correct you just a minor, uh, you said uh, the network. We had no network. We were not a network show. We were what you said, what your second thought is correct. We were a syndicated show that were sold to any network that wanted us, as was Next Generation. It's only Voyager that became the network show of the new network. So yes, you're absolutely right. They were interested in forming a new network and Voyager was going to be the cornerstone of that new network. So they weren't looking at us very heavily and they were dealing with Next Generation making films and Voyager being the cornerstone. So as I said, we felt like orphans. We felt like, well, doesn't anyone care about us? And because of that, yes, Ira and other writers uh, could do things uh, under the radar because no one was paying a lot of attention, except for Berman. And I understand there were some tete-a-tetes between the writing department and Berman, and they worked out whatever compromises they needed to work out. We had enorm as enormously good writers, and, and, they, and they wrote us delicious things to say. And the plots are intriguing, and they took liberties that 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 are rarely seen in Star Trek. For instance, uh, my favorite is Far Beyond the Stars, which is an episode that has very little to do with Deep Space Nine, except it's a Deep Space Nine show. It has to deal with racism in America, and all of us, we we're talking about makeup, all of us are out of makeup for most of that show. Uh, I don't think Quark ever shows up in that show. Uh, uh, Armin does, but uh, or Herb does. That's the character I'm playing, uh, but not Quark. And and if the and if the characters for the most part do show up, it's because uh, the lead character Benny, who is uh, Benjamin Cisco, uh, uh, has a flash of, of seeing them as a as a science fiction character. And I think that's an episode. That's a fan favorite episode that went under the radar when it first aired but is now hailed as one of the best episodes of the series it's really really good it, it is my favorite i would venture to say it's not only good star trek it's great tv and because the the themes that the that the script deals with uh the way avery directed it the performances that he got out of the, the actors but again the writing uh the analogies are just Brilliant, brilliant. I'm often asked, other actors on the show became directors. Did you ever want to be a director? And the answer I give is no, I never wanted to be a director. I did want to be a writer. Um, and, and that desire to be a writer uh, is, uh, is what helped promulgate my becoming a, a novelist. You've been to England. Did you, have you ever visited Stratford? Or, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah several times. Uh, I've been to Stratford several times. In fact, uh, right before COVID hit, my wife and I uh, walked uh, 105 miles from Stratford to Bath with some friends. Uh, a pathway, it's called the Cotswold Way, um, which I'm sure Shakespeare himself must have followed. Um, but I have gone to Stratford uh, 
I would say three times, maybe four times, seen the plays there, uh, visited all the tourist things that you have to do, went to visit the outlying areas, which are also part of Shakespeare's life. Um, one, because I wanted to, because I'm a Shakespeare uh, fan. And two, I wanted to do it because I was going to be writing uh, the, these books, the, the uh, Illyria books, and I, I wanted to revisit things to make sure I had them right. About four years ago, I made a trip to London and uh, I was on my own. Usually my wife travels with me, but this trip I was on my own. I got to my hotel in London and I promised myself I'd, to go someplace that I'd always wanted to go. So um, I, I looked it up. I found out how to get there uh, by subway and I went to Mortlake. And as you know, because uh, you've read the books, Mortlake is the home of John Dee, the actual home of John And I thought, I wonder if anything exists here left from John D. And I came to find out that there was a wall left over from the original house uh, that sits by the Thames that is still there. And uh, I immediately went there and stood in front of that wall. And uh, it, it was a religious experience. I went, oh my God, this is the home of the guy that I've been fascinated with for 25 years. It, he actually lived on the other side of these bricks. Um, all that was left was the wall and the property, of course, but 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 the view that I was seeing of the Thames had to be relatively close, not the same, of course, but relatively close to the view that he experienced when he looked out his windows. Now, I want to wrap up with, I have a lightning round for you. What's your favorite word? Favorite word? Yeah. Um, Kitty. What are your top three Shakespeare plays? Twelfth Night. Hamlet, and ironically, Measure for Measure. Do you have a favorite Star Trek episode? Far Beyond the Stars. Klingon, Bloodwine, or Cardassian, Canar? Oh, Bloodwine. Canar is horrible stuff. Horrible stuff. It's prune juice. You don't want to drink that. Favorite Shakespearean role? Claudius. My original from high school, Claudius. Is there a Shakespearean role you've never played but you want to? Yes. There's a part that I was always perfect for and never got to play. Uh, well, I rehearsed it for two weeks. So the part was Richard III. And, and as a young man auditioning for theater uh, in New York and in San Diego and other places, uh, they often asked you to come in and do some Shakespearean monologue. And I always came in and did not Richard III, same character, he's Richard of Gloucester from one of the Henry VI plays, Henry VI part two. And, uh, and I adored that character um, and was very good at it. That's why I got work because I was very good. I mean, there's no two ways around. I'm not bragging. I went in, did that audition, they hired me. So, um, um, and I always wanted to play Richard III and I was casting it once and uh, I was in the second week of rehearsal and became enormously frustrated with the opinions of the director and just quit. So I never got actually to play it. Armin Shimmerman, thank you so much for joining me today. It has been an absolute honor. Um, thank you, team. My pleasure. This was great fun. Uh, thanks so much. Have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. Right. Bye. Bye. <laughs>